Hey friends, welcome back to the journal feed. My name is Nick Zelt, and this is the only place to get spoon-fed the latest and greatest of emergency medicine where we keep you up on the literature by spoon-feeding it to you. Now, if you are hearing this right now, then you are not currently a journal feed subscriber, and so you will not be receiving the full journal feed podcast, only receiving a portion of the past week's articles. Don't worry, all good articles. But if you would like to get full access to both the podcast and the blog, then you'll have to become a member. All the details for that are at journalfeed.org. And remember, we never want money to be a barrier to better patient care. So if you're having any trouble affording a subscription, just get in touch. We'll help you out. This is the audio version of the past week summaries, which were brought to you by our authors, Larry Stack, Amanda Matthews, Christian Geralt, Sam Parnell, Michael Stalker, and Clay Smith. Okay, let's skip over to the second article. Emergency Medical Services Handoff of Patients in Cardiac Arrest in the Emergency Department, a retrospective video review study of duration and details of handoff under the journal Resuscitation. So you show up to your resuscitation bay, EMS is already offloading an out-of-hospital cardiac arrest patient from their gurney, you make eye contact, you kind of raise your eyebrows and the well-understood signal that you want a story, you want to know what they know. And what they tell you, the details, and how much of those details, it can vary highly. Some want to talk, 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 and others say very little. This author did a retrospective study at a quaternary care center that sees approximately 112 cardiac arrests per year. That's two-ish a week. Not actually that much. Now, all cardiac arrests occurred in the resuscitation bays when they were brought in by EMS, and they had video and audio recordings of all of this which were already being reviewed by quality improvement committees. They reviewed 95 out-of-hospital cardiac arrests over a 28-month period for this study to evaluate the frequency at which EMS communicated key data points. And they also wanted to correlate this as to how well the emergency department was then able to take that patient and determine what rhythm they had and hopefully defibrillate. Now, the handoffs were initiated in a median of two seconds, it's really fast, actually. And the median length of handoff was 66 seconds, which actually sounds kind of long. The median number of data points communicated was 9, out of a total potential of 17 that they might have wanted. Specific variables such as witnessed arrest or not, bystander CPR, and end title CO2 were communicated in less than half of the handovers. The initial rhythm of the patient was given in handoff in 79% of cases which is not too bad. Defibrillation attempts were only reported in 58% of cases, which is crazy because you don't know where you're picking up in your ACLS if you don't know that. What I guess is sort of nice, because you keep trucking through, is that the number of key points communicated during handoff was not associated with the time to rhythm check or defibrillation. It's pretty good because it's then not delaying all the critical care that we could be giving to these patients. Now, this is not exactly a glowing review of handoffs here. There are certain key details which are pertinent positives and also pertinent as negatives. The authors listed a total of 17 items. Here they are. The location of arrest, whether it was witnessed or not, the estimated time down, if there was bystander CPR, their age, the initial rhythm, most recent rhythm, was there ever ROSC, what was the time since last ROSC, the number of shocks given, time since last shock, what type of airway is in place, the use of RSI medications, and tidal CO2 values, whether or not there's an IV or an IO placed, the medications given, and finally the code status of the patient, if you know it. 
Now, that's a lot to ask anyone to remember to just kind of regurgitate. So we made a nice little checklist that you could use, and it's found on the blog. This is the kind of checklist which might be nice to give to your nursing staff so that they can quickly just rattle off these questions to the EMS agency. This way, there's a very little chance of there being important information missing, and you can get all that you need. In a spoonful, though it's not affecting how quickly we get in the first shock in the emergency department, this single-center trial showed that there are many holes in how EMS is giving handoff for out-of-hospital cardiac arrests. And then the third article, titled Acute Coronary Occlusion in a Patient with Prior Known Right Bundle Branch Block, Another Chink in the Armor of the ST Elevation Myocardial Infarction Criteria. Now, I'm a big supporter of the OMI paradigm, occlusion MIs. The whole point is that we can't always rely on the classic definition of ST elevation MIs in all cases to diagnose occluded coronary vessels that could benefit from a cath lab. Dr. Stephen Smith and Dr. Pendle Myers are to thank for this change in emergency medicine, which cardiology will hopefully eventually catch up with. And if you haven't already read their blog, Dr. Smith's blog, I think you really should. One thing that often makes ECG interpretation a bit different is if the patient has a bundle branch block. We've talked before about the modified Scarbosa criteria for left bundle branch block and pace rhythms, but let's switch hands and remind ourselves about right bundle branch block. This article was a case of a patient with known CAD, a prior LAD stent, and known right bundle branch block. They presented with acute chest pain. Their ECG shows ST elevation in leads V1 through V3. 0.5 millimeters in V1, 1.5 millimeters in V2, and 1 millimeter in V3, all ST elevation. By STEMI criteria, this does not actually warrant cath lab activation. However, thankfully, someone was smart and this patient did indeed go to the cath lab, where they saw restenosis of the LAD stent and 85% occlusion of the first right diagonal, TIMI zero flow. That's not good, and it was all STEMI negative. Thankfully, the person that saw this EG knew that with right bundle branch blocks, you actually expect ST depression in V1 through V3 with inverted T waves. So it's not normal to see in right bundle branch block to have ST elevation in any of those leads. That's definitely not normal. Even isoelectric is actually abnormal and warrants some investigation in the right context. So this has just been a friendly public service announcement that you can certainly see signs of occlusion MI in patients with right bundle branch block, even if it's STEMI negative. In a spoonful, forget STEMI, think OMI, especially in altered ECGs like patients with right bundle branch block. Okay, that's it. Let's do our wrap up from this week. From the second article, EMS handoff for out-of-hospital cardiac arrests. Eek, far from perfect. Barely better than half of the important points were actually given over in handoff by the EMS agencies in this study. Consider using a checklist. From the third article, ST elevation in V1 to V3 is abnormal in right bundle branch block. Even isoelectric can be scary. So you have to keep more than just the STEMI criteria in mind and think more broadly about OMIs. Again, if you were hearing this right now, then you are not a part of the members feed, and so you missed three articles from this past week. We talked about the use of our language and whether we really need to use the word need. Then we talked about how DOACs are great, but is there good evidence in children? And finally, we did a review of blast injuries. Links to all the articles summarized can be found at journalfeed.org, where the newsletter is the best way to make the podcast into a bite-sized nugget of space repetition. Our goal here is for you to read less, learn more, and save lives, one spoonful at a time. Thank you.